Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 27. I am your host, Steve Oki. Today's episode features my conversation with Dr. Mary Ellen Konechna of the University of Notre Dame. We talk about how Professor Konechna's experience working for the Archdiocese of Chicago led her to study the sociology of religion, her current research into religious practice at the U.S. Air Force Academy, and why the real problem of polarization is not conflict, but the lack of engagement on different sides. As always, we are grateful for your reviews on iTunes, and you can also leave comments on the blog posts. And thank you very much for listening. Well, today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm speaking with Professor Mary Ellen Konechna. Did I get that? You did. All right. That's excellent. And Professor Konechna is an associate professor of sociology at Notre Dame. Are you on sabbatical right now or? That's right. I'm on leave. You're on leave right now. Okay. And... Yeah, I'm on research leave. I'm writing a book. Oh, very good. We will definitely come back to that. So the way I like to start podcast is to talk to people about, you know, how they came to work in the field that they're in. What is it that brought you or what was your process for coming into the study of the sociology of religion? Well, the process was kind of an extended one in that I had a different career before I came to sociology. I have a Master of Divinity from Weston Jesuit School of Theology. Okay. And after receiving that, I, I intended to do ministry in the church, which I did. I worked for nine years for the Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago. Okay. I actually started in Catholic campus ministry, but then spent the next seven years in administration in the vocation office. And then I was the director of Catholic campus ministry for the Diocese of Chicago. Huh. Through that time, well, there were a couple of things. I mean, one is I, I actually missed academic life. I really loved what I did, but I, I missed academics. And when I became director of campus ministry for the archdiocese, as part of the planning, I wanted to do some sociological research about college students. Hmm. And one of my colleagues and, and I wanted to do that because I had actually become acquainted with sociology when I worked in the vocation office. And one of my colleagues said, well, you know, you don't want to hire somebody to do this. You want to do this yourself. <laughs> and, th- <laughs> and they were right. Um, and so... <laughs> did, you, did you initially and, think to yourself, like, no, no I don't. I, what are you talking about? Or, was it, or did it, right away you were like, absolutely, that is right. It, it was, and I think it, 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 it felt right right away, actually, huh. and which was which was funny. I mean, and at the time, I was enjoying what I was doing, but like I said, I was also sort of missing the academic world. Mm-hmm. And I had started; I had actually started taking some classes in organization development, and I was at a stage in my life. I had small children, and I thought, well, if I was going to get a PhD, it was going to be now. And I so I kind of thought about organizational psychology. But then when somebody said to me, you know, you want to do the study, it made me think about sociology. Hmm. So I investigated it and I applied to graduate programs. <laughs> and then and then I, I, I became a graduate student at the University of Chicago because my search needed to be limited because my husband's an architect and works in Chicago and mm. uh, our kids were little. It wasn't really a, a good time to think about moving for a graduate program. And at Chicago, I, I actually wasn't sure exactly what path I would take, but my the professors that I worked with encouraged me. They said, like, I I thought that I would probably study religion, Mm -hmm. but then they encouraged me in particular to study Catholicism because they said, you know, you have such a tremendous background and that, you know, they, and they also, well, there were a variety of other reasons. I mean, it's at that time, Studying Catholicism and and actually even something I, I my work is on American Catholicism mostly until the last couple of years, but it's something that could allow me to have a global lens. Mm. And the sociology of religion in the United States does it, it can be parochial, and it's mostly been the study of American Protestantism. I, this has changed recently, like I'd say within okay. the last ten to fifteen years, but it's true that. The sociology of religion in the U.S. is still largely focused 
on the U.S. and North America, mm-hmm. but studying and on Protestantism. But that's I think that's less and less these days. But to come at it as someone studying Catholicism and sort of open to sort of more global conversations was well, my professors thought it would be a good idea. It was actually initially difficult for me to to do, but in the end, I think it was it was a, a worthwhile, and it certainly was a good choice. I I really like doing what I do. When you were at at Chicago, did so? Did you take courses in the Divinity School as well, or I did. Okay, I I yeah, did my I, ma- so I did I my was... master's there, so oh. I. Oh, did you really? Yeah. In the, at the Divinity School. Yeah, yeah. In what area? I was in systematic, or I guess. I guess they just called it theology or constructive theology and religious ethics. You finished in 2005, right? Right. I I finished my master's in 2005. I was there from 2003 to 2005. Well, you know, it was Chicago, so so you can imagine I wasn't around (laughs) much by that time. (laughs) Well, and that was kind of one of the fun, funny things to me about being in a divinity school is I I didn't know any or almost any of the PhD students because, you know, they weren't, they were, most of them were off, you know, researching or teaching or adjuncting or, you know, I would never see them actually in Swift Hall because they they just weren't there anymore. You know, they weren't really there. Right. So. Right. I was in the sociology department, but my advisor was Martin Riesebrot, who was cross-listed with the Divinity School. And of course, eventually he was just in the Divinity School, and that is where his office always was. So I was in Swift all the time. (laughs) That's fantastic. So your interest, in a sense, then came from you were already doing ministerial work, and you had questions you wanted to answer that would help with that ministerial work? Is that a fair way to put that? Yeah, I think that was the original motivation. Although, as I, you know, honestly, though, I didn't really know, other than the empirical work, I didn't know much about sociology before Mm. I came to graduate school. And the, the more I learned about it, you know, like I tell people that I study religion because this is, you know, the, because this was what I know, or the, you know, like mm-hmm. like my professional trajectory made it a really good thing to study. But I'm a sociologist, I think, because of the study of inequality more generally. But you know, that that's one of the things that, like, so for instance, I'm a sociologist rather than an organizational psychologist. Okay. I think because the the discipline is broad, and the discipline is fundamentally concerned with issues of inequality. And while I study, the primary thing that I do is study cultural conflict and religion. Mm-hmm. Inequality, I think, makes its way into that. Can you maybe say more, partly for me, but also partly for our listeners, what is it about inequality that makes it so essential to the work you're doing in sociology? Maybe it's a really obvious thing, I don't know, but in terms of why is that a key concept to work with to sort of understand what's happening in sociology or what sociology is trying to understand and answer? Sociology, it's the study of social groups. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would say that power and hierarchy Mm. are fundamental to social life. Sure. As is conflict, right? So, So I think that it's a it's a consistent theme in sociology. Mm-hmm. Stratification studies are one mm-hmm. of the kind of core areas of sociology. Sociology is very broad, but you encounter inequality in just about I mean like yeah, in just about any situation that you're studying in the social world. And so it's important to have tools to try to break that down and understand it. Yeah. So anytime so, you have so, power dynamics, you're gonna have a question of inequality. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And and so the, I mean, that's the intellectual reason, but uh, uh, there's also kind of a personal motivation behind mm-hmm. that. And it's just simply that I come from a working class family. And this is actually sort of not atypical of sociologists, or at least Robert Merton, who was a sociologist in the 1930s, talked about this. He talked about sociologists as marginal men, marginal people, huh. as people who have whose experience of the world, they they were positioned, at least early in life, as sort of almost like outsiders to the groups that they were part of. So Hmm. by the time I was in high school, I had a scholarship to a high school that was largely middle class. And coming from the working class, that was a, you know, I was very aware that that was a difficult transition, 
right? And I came into it without a lot of the advantages that the girls that were more middle class had, and I had to learn how to be a part of that environment. And so Merton says that sociologists are often these kinds of people who early in their lives have had to traverse some kind of social difference, and it makes you aware of the sort of larger social processes in the world because you have to learn how to sort of fit into them. That's really interesting. I have a theory that a lot of people who study theology are on some level that, you know, what drives them into it is trying to work out their own, you know, existential faith questions and theology, academic theology becomes a a means of trying to do that. And it's interesting hearing Merton sees this parallel process functioning in sociology as well. Yeah, I I think that that happens actually in a lot of humanities and some social science disciplines, right? I I don't know about the motivations in the hard sciences. I think that's a combination (laughs) of things, but... Trying to work out your own relationship with gravity or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So how long have you been at Notre Dame then? Did you you start there or... I, well, I, when I, I got my PhD in 2005, and then I actually, I never went on the job market because our kids were in high school. My husband works a lot, mm-hmm. but I had been teaching at a small Missouri Synod Lutheran school, and they invited me to apply. So I I worked there for a few years on a tenure track that was at Concordia University, Chicago. Sure. Eventually, there was a job available here at Notre Dame, and I had actually talked to the director of the center that I met, Chris Smith, Christian Smith, a while back, because I knew that eventually I wanted to be at a research institution. And he had made that same transition from a liberal arts school to a research institution. So the you know, to make a long story short, I ended up being offered a job here and in the sociology department in the Center for the Study of Religion and Society. Okay. And I began here in 2008. And so you said you're on a research leave now. I got connected with you through liturgical press because of the polarization in the U.S. Catholic Church text, where it's, it's looking at, you know, different dimensions of what is polarization for U.S. Catholics? Why is it there? What, you know, ways that it expresses itself? And I was wondering, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the process of that, the conference that the book is, comes out of and, and the book itself, what is your sense of the, the place or role or, or structure of polarization within the, the U.S. Catholic Church? What, what does that look like to you or what's the, what's the import of it to you? Well, can I tell a story about that for Please, you? Absolutely. So like how okay, so first of all, that I know that the, the I'm really glad that it's the polarization edited volume that came from the conference that Charlie Camosi and I put uh, put together at, at Notre Dame in twenty fifteen. We did this because my first book well, I actually didn't know Charlie until after my first book was published. My first book is, it's called uh, The Spirit's Tether, mm-hmm. Family Work and Religion Among American Catholics. And it was published in 2013. And it's a it's an ethnographic study of a, a more progressive parish and a more conservative Catholic parish. And what it seeks to understand is why Catholics are polarized around the family, why, why people have emotional connections to issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. Okay. And so I, so I had written this book and Mike McGillicuddy, who's actually who has a small he, he has a small reflection in the book, mm-hmm. who's a Chicagoan and a social worker in Chicago, he contacted me independent and contacted Charlie independently because he was really concerned about polarization in the church and, and as he has he's talks eloquently in the book about how he himself has been wounded by this Mm -hmm. and his experience of the church. And so he was the person that actually brought Charlie and me together to talk about these issues because he wanted to do something. Mm -hmm. And so we did something, but the, (laughs) but, but the, but the, the, the sort of the longer backdrop to why I wrote that book, that was my dissertation, Mm -hmm. but why I chose to write it really came from my experience of working in the archdiocese of Chicago and actually having to deal with polar attitudes to represent the, to be a representative of the archdiocese Mm -hmm. in the middle of that and be in settings, the vocation office and Catholic campus ministry were places that liberal and conservative 
views on a number of issues often clashed. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I saw this develop, and I thought it was an important thing to address. So, so I guess part of what I'm saying is I've seen this develop historically. I chose to study family issues because I think that issues around sex and gender and other issues related to the family seem to be one of the the most contentious issues, the most contentious places where people came to be at odds with each other as Catholics. Mm. And and I wanted to understand what that was about. You know, on a, really on a sort of a on a sort of fundamental social and social level as well and everything that goes into that not just what people think, but what they feel. I spoke recently with your other co-editor, Trisha Bruce, and mm-hmm. she talked about how she's she's done research. It kind of, I guess it sounds similar in structure where she looked at a parish that was more, I guess, kind of a Tridentine parish with the, the pre-Vatican II liturgy and contrasted that with a more progressive parish with a strong focus on social justice. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is kind of a similar thing, except the axis of polarization wasn't so much a kind of liturgical uh, service kind of polar uh, axis, but uh, the family axis in terms of different views of, of sexuality and family, etc. Is that is that fair? Yes, I think that's true, except that one of the things that I find, or I mean, I show this in these parishes, but I think just in generally, and having worked for the archdiocese, I, I see this, that there's often, there's an affinity, or I yeah. guess like in, like Weber would say, an, an elective affinity, right? It's contingent. It's not necessarily predetermined, mm-hmm. but an affinity between liturgical style and people's attitudes about issues around that have to do with the family. The yeah, there's a, there's a lot of overlap and, and similarity. I mean, you can often kind of line things up to be pretty consistent with one another, depending on the, the side of an ideology one falls on, right? Right. And and a part of what I argue in my book is that, 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 that in seeing this, part of what's happening is that people have sort of certain schemas, there are certain ways of understanding the world that's embedded in things like the liturgy or in family routines. And often they use those things then to, to address new problems. Mm-hmm. And that the reason why we see you know, sort of this, the like, or can see a bifurcation, especially when, let's say, a particular parish is, let's say, sort of more, is not as diverse as most parishes, right? Mm-hmm. So most Catholic parishes, in my experience, have a fair amount of diversity in them around sort of uh, theological issues, as well as um, they might be more homogeneous class-wise or something like that, mm-hmm. but they would often represent you know, a fair degree of diversity when it came to sort of attitudes towards the church. But the less diverse they are, the more likely you are to find communities of people that have maybe like a narrower number of of kind of schemas or ways of imagining the world that, that they apply to, you know, sort of new situations in their lives, new problems that then you know, sort of come to look something like what they're already doing, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the and that would be the relationship between kind of how people think and practice worship, and how they might choose to educate their children, or what mm-hmm. they might, or or how they might how they might think about family routines, sort of the structure of the day, what's important when people are together or when they're separate and doing things, things like that, right? And then that also then is connected to symbolic issues that have like great symbolic importance, like abortion, like same-sex marriage. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think maybe one of the things I, I also am thinking through is for myself, at least, when I think of polarization, often you know my my go to lens is is political, and thinking mm-hmm. in terms of, of party affiliation and the the way that you know the certain ideological sort sorting of parties, and how among the the groups of students that I teach at, at Saint Leo are uh, men who are in formation for the permanent diaconate mm-hmm. in the diocese, and mm-hmm. in a lot of ways the 
it's interesting even noting or maybe especially noting among them the way that party affiliation seems to line up so much with also their own particular expression of catholicism and so mm. more mm-hmm. politically conservative students tend to also be more religiously conservative and more politically progressive tend to be more religiously liberal or religiously progressive and yeah and so I, I, in a way, I, I kind of, the, the struggle I sometimes have in, in working with them, because I, mostly what I teach them is ethics. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of places where those things start to collide with one another. I struggle with this question of, is there a way in which, you know, their political perspective is driving their religious uh, understanding or is it more the other way? Or is it, is it really just a, a back and forth kind of conversational internal conversation for them or I guess what to do with that. And and part of why I wonder also is, you know, and thinking about, you know, this edited volume, you know, you were mentioning the piece about someone's wounds, McGillicuddy's wounds, and the subtitle is, is Naming the Wounds and Beginning to Heal. I, I guess one of the things I wonder or if you have insight on is in terms of this problem of polarization or this reality of polarization, it's not simply a political polarization. It's not simply a religious polarization. And so I, I also kind of wonder, you know, where does the healing come from or, or what, do, what kind of what do we do with this this reality? I don't know well, if that question makes sense or not. Or. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there's two two questions or I hear two questions in this. So in terms of sort of like where does the healing – well, and I guess they're connected, right? So in terms of the where the healing comes from, I guess that's part of what we wanted to explore in the edited volume. And I'll mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that in a minute. But I think your question's important about – where does politics and in the public sphere, party politics, where do, how it, does this align? And I think you correctly point to what has been sort of a growing bifurcation that does that, you know, Catholics historically, they, they didn't quite line up according to any one po- political party necessarily, like their views and still don't really mm-hmm. depending. Well, depends upon the group of Catholics. Right. But unlike Protestants, which more clearly, at least historically, more or less kind of lined up depending upon their denomination, sort of as Democrats or Republicans pretty consistently, that hasn't been true of Catholics, right? There's more diversity. Mm-hmm. There, historically, there's been more diversity. You know, it, even now you'll read articles where people will say things like, how can you, you, you can't find Catholic views completely represented in either the Democratic or Republican Party, mm-hmm. right? So, but given that, what sociologists have seen over time, I think, in the Catholic electorate is much more, the Catholic part of the electorate is much more of a exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about, that particular kinds of religious practice and more progressive views line up on one side with Democratic Party politics and more conservative religious practice tends to line up with Republican politics. Does that is and that's what you're saying. Yeah, right? that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm seeing. And in a sense, in you know, in in thinking also about this question of, of healing, you know, I have this I always have this kind of naive hope, you know, that the you know, the unity of the church or the one body of Christ or something would be a place of healing or a or an ideal or or an aspiration or something like that. And maybe it still is. But it also it seems so often to also be a cudgel or a bludgeon or something to attack your co-religionists with, mm-hmm. you know, and say like, you're voting Republican, you're not really a Catholic, and uh, or vice versa, or or what whatnot, and right, and it, right, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, I, make, it I, makes this I, like I, image of of you know one one body, many parts, this way of just like breaking apart the parts, and it it's just very sad, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's true, and I, I do think that in part that's a, a product of like you were asking the question of even like do people self-select into these groups mm-hmm. or are or is it religion that drives it and and then I think you said something like or is it a dialogue and I and I think that there is a dialectical relationship between you know religious views and like or like sort of kind of the kind of religion that uh, kind of Catholicism that people practice yeah and their their politics you know their but I I do think that there that's 
that's often sort of dialectically informed or mm-hmm. confirmed or disconfirmed. I think sociologists show evidence for both, both like sort of bi-directional causation, if you want, if you want to use <laughs> sociological language, right? Yes, Although I think yeah. that that I think that a lot of people would say that that there is there's probably that they might come down on the side of well the personal characteristics of people that influence their politics also influence the way that they take in religion yeah so so I, so i think that you know that's an important issue also and i do think that the present climate of polarization is influenced by the larger society right and the polarization in the larger society mm-hmm. that it's not purely a product of of catholicism yeah right but that it's but it, that there are social influences that make it make it more difficult not to be bifurcated in this way now having said that though the some of the social there there are countervailing forces like that are social right mm-hmm. and two of them are located in the characteristics of the millennial generation and the Hispanic communities in the United mm-hmm. States. So one of the one of the things in our in our book that I think I find to be most refreshing and most hopeful are uh, Liz Tennant's uh, contribution about millennials and also uh, Chris Smith also uh, addresses millennials mm-hmm. and Hobson Espino's observations about Hispanic Catholics. And they both make the point that for different reasons, this kind of polarization doesn't really make sense to these groups of Catholics. Mm-hmm. And for millennials, oftentimes it's a it's one, one of the confirmations for them that, gee, maybe institutional religion shouldn't be so important. Maybe mm-hmm. it isn't so important, right? Yeah. And And for Latinos, well, they're, you know, and Hassan points out. I mean, they are they they are going to be an impo- they already are an important force in the Catholic Church in the United States, and they will only grow in importance. And they do not see the church in in the ways that with this kind of polarized lens. Yeah. And I think those are both really healthy signs for the future. Hmm. You know, Chris Smith, I think he's one of the people that says that in uh, in his reflections, you know, he points out that some of the polarization in the church is rooted in Vatican II and post-Vatican II yeah. generations of Catholics. It's really a generational phenomenon, right? Yeah. And uh, Father Jenkins, John Jenkins, our president, points out that this is, you know, he uses Dave Campbell's work to say that, well, a lot of the polarization that we see in U.S. society more generally, in American Catholicism in particular, arises out of the developments that happened after the Vietnam War and the sexual revolution of the 1960s, mm-hmm. right, and reactions to that. Mm-hmm. And so the, both of them are very aware that this is really generational. Mm-hmm. And so to some extent... You know, you know, prior to the 70s and the 60s and Vatican II, etc., there was there seemed to be somewhat more sort of social cohesion among Catholics in terms of, I mean, there were there were certainly ethnic differences, but uh, in many ways, maybe political. There was more political consistency or more social consistency. Is that fair? Yeah, in general, I think that's true. I think um, the way that I might describe it is that that the conflict was just along different axes, um, yeah, like that okay. it was more about ethnicity, yeah. right? Because, I mean, conflict, I mean, and, and here's the thing is conflict, as difficult as it can be sometimes, is often a healthy part of social life, yeah. right? So, I mean, you, you know, you want to acknowledge that. I Like, my argument in my book is that this kind, the kind of conflict that's polarizing conflict, where people are talking past each other all the time, where they're not engaging, really engaging, mm. is not life-giving, that it's destructive, right? Mm-hmm. So Alistair McIntyre makes the argument in After Virtue that, you know, tradition is a fight, right? Mm. So I would say, well, tradition is a fight when you have ethnic Catholics <laughs> fighting about what Catholicism <laughs> is in the 40s and 50s, right? And, um, but there, but and, and of course, they were also in the United States, they were also aligned against, you know, depending upon what area of the country they lived in. I mean, there, there were, there was still 
anti-Catholicism at sure. work, right? So yeah. they were coming into their own as as sort of truly not just Catholic but American, mm-hmm. right? So people like Jay Dolan and oh gosh, uh, you know, other historians have kind of written about sure. that. But that the I think that you know my concern is that in in our age when nobody's engaging one another, that that kind of conflict, that it's not every kind of conflict or every kind of fight that develops tradition in a life-giving way and that, you know, in a a way that vivifies, but in fact, that can also destroy, Mm. right? That there are kinds of conflict that can can also enervate or suck the life out of uh, a tradition. So in a way, the the real problem of polarization is not the conflict and disagreement, it's the lack of engagement among the different sides? Or the, or the lack of real engagement? Or Yeah, I, I think that's what I think, that conflict is healthier or life-giving or whatever, like when people do engage, mm-hmm. right? So, and I, and there are people, so I, like the person that I think of, I mean, they're, they're in, there are a number of people in the, in the volume that make similar kinds of you know, move in a similar direction, but I think Holly Taylor Kuhlman mm-hmm. is the person I think of that that talks about that sort of most clearly. Mm-hmm. I think where she makes the point that people not engaging is just not a good thing. Mm-hmm. That that and and I think this was one of the themes of the conference in general. I think that we what we wanted was people that would be we actually when we when we invited people to speak and we invited um, delegates to the conference, we were looking for first of all for sort of a a new generation of scholars, by mm-hmm. and large, right, to approach these issues because they are from, I mean, they have been around for a while, and there have been other groups of people talking about them, like like Cardinal Bernadine's Common Ground Initiative. And we didn't want to exactly ignore that group and what they have contributed, because they have contributed, mm-hmm. but we also wanted a new generation of scholars who wanted to give people a platform to talk about this, and, and especially from a perspective, especially those who had perspectives, let's say, as millennials, mm-hmm. right? Or, again, like the Hispanic community was an important group to represent, right? And to, but to have other voices in the conversation, we thought was would kind of, we were hoping that the, especially with the moment with Pope Francis, mm-hmm. who had already kind of jump started these conversations, that this would be, that we could we could pull other people into the conversation. One thing I was kind of wondering, building from there, is you mentioned you're working on a new book, and is is this the the service before self book that you're working on? It is. Okay. And I was, I'm curious because the, the subtitle, as I, as I saw at least on, I think on Amazon was uh, Organization, Cultural Conflict and Religion at the U.S. Air Force Academy. And I was kind of curious if you, if, if you'd be willing anyway, to say a little something about what it is you're looking at in that book. I'm struck by, at least in my impression, when you're, if you're talking about the U.S. Air Force Academy, I mean, you are talking about this sort of, you know, highly traditional, institutional kind of setting and I'm curious about the way in which organization and conflict would function there, and what what religion would have to do with that. Oh, sure. So I, I, yeah, I don't I'd know. If, I don't know if it's connected it. to this to to the polarization question or not at all. But I like I see a trajectory, and I'm kind of curious about it. So. Well, and you would be right. Yeah. No, there is. I, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's it's definitely right. So it's so so it. When I was looking for a topic for a second book. This seemed well. I mean, the long story is that we, my husband and I, and our kids. We, my husband's an architect, and so when we were in Colorado, we went to the Air Force Academy because the chapel is landmarked and it's mm-hmm. historically significant as a the whole campus is really as a example of mid-century modern architecture. But when I walked into, the, I, well, I knew about the chapel, but when I walked in and saw that it was very much a product of its time, sort of. Protestant Catholic Jew, right? So it's mm-hmm. three chapels in one. And I went looking for information about it. And I, I actually initially thought that it would be a good place to study issues of disestablishment and free exercise of religion and the tension mm. between them. Okay. But the longer that I, the more that I learned, and the longer that I was able to be at the academy, I would go there every now and then and eventually got permission to conduct research there and got to know people. They, what they really wanted to know about was the conflicts that had happened there since about 2004. 
in 2004, there was a series of events around proselytism and evangelical Christianity that actually ended up hitting the news. There was a lawsuit filed against the academy. And what it ended up doing was sort of creating an organizational shock at the Air Force Academy. And since then, they've been dealing with uh, issues not only around, well, around the role of religion in public life there. Hmm. And it's particularly an issue because it's a government institution. People, members of the military, on average, are more religious than the, than the American public at large. It's also a training mm. institution. So, and it's a it's an engineering school, really. I mean, it's a you know military academy. I mean, it's all about flight. It's about engineering. Mm-hmm. So it's science. It's it's a place where there's scientists, right? Scientifically oriented people, but also religious people. And I think of the military. I make an argument that the military. It's really a heightened form of citizenship, but it's also a place where you see cultural conflicts over religion. So, for instance, one example would be in the military. Don't ask and don't tell, and it's repeal. Mm-hmm. Now, most of the most of the conversations in the military about this, the public conversations, were around the, you know very sounded pragmatic about you know sort of like soldiers living together in close quarters and all of this. But but the people that I talked to, and I think there's been actually some articles written about this as well, is that underlying a lot of the people's views one way or the other around don't ask, don't tell and its repeal were religious values, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And around evangelical Christianity, pluralism, free exercise, those kinds of things. This also has been another kind of cultural conflict over time at the academy. What's the permissible limits of religious expression? Mm-hmm. So in a, mili- in a military con- context, that's going to be more limited in some ways because of some of the constraints of military life right? Mm-hmm. than it is in the general public. But it's also a good To some extent, it's also a mirror of what's going on in the country, right? And then the other thing that's attracted my notice was that there was a controversy around a freethinkers group there, which was originally, in in the early 2000s, was included in their, under the chaplain's office, Hmm. in their SPIRE program. And then there were a set of controversies so that now... That basically, the chief of chaplains ended up, the, the controversy went all the way up to the chief of chaplains, who said that, well, the freethinkers are really neither a religious nor a spiritual group. And so they're now, um, I think they're, I can't, remember, I can't remember if they're an academic club or a different kind of club, but they're no longer under the chaplain's office. And this is still something that is, it's actually where they would prefer to be. Well, it depends on the group of freethinkers and where they're at. But generally speaking, the freethinkers more often have wanted to be under the spire. It's, it's, they're called they're called spire groups, uh, the religious groups at sure. the academy, the cadet groups, huh. because they say it's about you know ultimate questions, questions of meaning, just like religions. Huh. So, so these kinds of issues are you know like issues of cultural conflict that involve religion in one way or another. And the, my purpose here is to, so in my first book, I, you know, I, I kind of looked at families, individuals, like people in parishes. And so, so here what I'm looking at is organizational processes and what happens in public secular organizations. Because what we know about polarization more generally in the U.S. is that like the American public as a whole is not polarized over most issues. There, there's, and by that I mean not split right down the middle. Mm-hmm. So except on uh, like the issue of abortion and the issue of same-sex marriage, that's, that, both are the places where the American public is split down the middle. But most other issues, there, there's basically about 20% of people who are located at either pole and then arrange in the middle where people hold more moderate views. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that these people that are at, that are the, you know, 15 to 20% that is at either poll, well, one place where they play out conflicts is in public secular institutions. And so that's, so, so my project here is to, is to look, you know, sort of like from sort of the 
ordinary people's lives and what their emotional connection is to polarizing issues. And like my first book, too, how do we understand the processes that drive polarization in public secular institutions? Because that's where elites are that drive these issues for the okay. public more generally. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, it does. No, that's really yeah. interesting when you were and when you were talking about the situation in the Air Force Academy, like I was thinking about how the way that you're phrasing it really does sound like a lot of the types of issues I hear more broadly in the public, especially around questions of religious freedom and free practice and whatnot. And right. So, yeah. Right. And yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is I think that the like I, I don't Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the that the discussion has actually shifted more in that direction over the last ten years or so. Yeah, that's been my impression too, and it and it's yeah. been striking. In it seems to be you know really squarely located one on the question of same sex marriage and two on the the the, the contraception question with the Affordable Care Act. Um, yes, but it, it's also interesting seeing the way in which the you know, especially in the in the last year or so with the election, the the way the, the role of of Islam and Muslims in America has become, you know, a, a place of that question as well. And right. it's almost like they're part of the part of the issue of polarization is not so much uh, people being for or against religious freedom, but or religious liberty, but of articulating what religious liberty means in, in at times very starkly different ways. Um, exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's actually what you see, like in the, you know, in the book that I'm writing, there's actually sort of, there's two figures. One is from the army and the other is from the air force, you know, that's where they have, but there are uh -huh. two public figures who, who speak on either side of that issue. So, and Mikey Weinstein, who actually filed suit against the Academy, he's mm. a former, uh, he's career air force, former cadet, and he was a JAG in the Reagan administration. He speaks on really on the disestablishment side, right? Of yeah. that issue. And then Gordon Klingon, Schmidt, again, retired army, speaks on the free exercise side. And so they re they represent the two sides of that debate. Hmm. Yeah, so that's the book I'm writing this year. All right. I hope. <laughs> I hope I'll finish it this year. <laughs> I'm working on it. I, I know that feeling really well. <laughs> that, that does actually lead me into a somewhat different question, which is, I know you mentioned you're on research leave and you, you wanted to be at a research institution. Do you still have much in the way of teaching responsibilities or is that that not as much a part of your life anymore. Oh gosh, no, it's a big part of my life. Okay. I, the, the, we have a typical, I mean, it's a pretty typical research institution teaching load. So mm -hmm. we generally teach two and two unless we have some kind of a course reduction. So yeah. I normally teach two and two and not teaching this year, but when I teach, I teach undergrads, teach social theory, and I teach a seminar on power. Okay. And for graduate students, I teach sociology of religion, religion, gender, and family. I teach sociology of organizations, but I also mentor. So I have right now, I have actually quite a few dissertations that I'll need to read this year. Mm. So, <laughs> so I still, so that's one of the things that I still do, right, is I, I work with the graduate students that, you know, that are that mostly the ones whose dissertations I chair. Mm -hmm. But that's, I think, you know, I, I don't know if you teach grad students, but that's, I mean, that's a significant amount of work. So yeah. I still do that. Yeah, I, I only, I have master's students, but I don't have any, we don't have PhD students. So I don't, I don't have that. Yeah that level of work. Yeah. Do you have a sense for what you do well or, or what kind of I don't know, advice you might have for, for balancing that well, for, you know, maintaining oh. a somewhat stable life of research and teaching and, you know, just being human and, and all that kind of stuff or. Yeah. It's the being human part. That's hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, no, I, I so I, I guess, I mean, I don't know if that I have any advice, but what I think that, I mean, and I do think there's actually different kinds of personalities around this, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not your traditional introverted academic who doesn't like people very much. You know, there mm. is that class of academics, you know, like, I mean, who are just there, like they're really, their vocation is really about producing research. I mean, it's what they love to do, right? Yeah. I, and then, but I, I'm an extrovert. I love research, but my teaching and my research really flow together. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have a year to, to write this book because otherwise it would take much longer. Yeah. But for me, the, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person where the, 
the connection between my teaching and research is pretty intimate, really, in a way. I learn from my students, and hopefully my students learn from me. For me, teaching classes is all about intellectual engagement that Mm -hmm. goes both ways. And I think that I encourage my students, I mean, part of what I teach is, is how to be how to do social research, how to think about the social world that is informed and sort of methodical, but also creative. Mm. And so I think that that informs my, you know, and, and, and I also think of teaching as almost like more mentoring, I guess, that it's about enlivening, like, like letting people find, you know, like, like facilitating people helping them to find their own understanding, you know, of how to do that. Because people's minds work in different ways, right? So, you know, my job is to provide a framework, but but mostly, I mean, I'm I'm trained at Chicago, so I'm a seminar-style teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I, I... even though, I mean, I jokingly say, of course I lecture, but I don't really, my, that's not, my, <laughs> but that's just totally inadvertent. <laughs> so it's really about, you know, facilitating discussion mm-hmm. and having, like, the work is, is the student's work, really. But, you know, I can guide that. I was actually, so that's been, today, today uh, I have two classes back to back, and in between I was talking to a few students, and one of them, she was saying how she really, and she's a really strong student and has great questions and, and, you know, comes prepared and all that. And she was talking about how much she hates lecture classes because she gets like, she, she zones out after about 20 minutes and, you know, and gets nothing out of it. And, 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 and this yeah. wasn't a dig at me because I, I don't really lecture all that much. Mine's much more of a, you know, Socratic question, Q and A kind of yeah. way of doing things. And I, I was thinking back to, I mean, I, I mean, I graduated undergrad in 2003, but it was still, I would say a lot of my classes, even my humanities classes, you know, they had a strong lecture component to them. And it, it seems like that's kind of diffusing a little bit. Yeah, it's, I, I don't, I mean, like, I so was not, like, I mean, of course, when I was an undergrad, graduate student, I think I might have had one, two lecture classes, mm-hmm. history of statistics, and or uh, statistical theory, right, and social theory. Mm-hmm. But but actually, I teach social theory, but I do it very much. I mean, like like you have to be able to show people the structure of arguments. Mm-hmm. But I do it. I do it through a lot of small to large group discussions and yeah. putting stuff on the board that you know as, as I ask people to piece it together. And so it's a so I you know but that's I mean that's the Chicago training. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of. You know, I'm not trained to give lectures. And I wonder if some, it's really true. And I wonder if some people are, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, but that just wasn't my training. Yeah. Maybe if I was teaching statistics. Yeah. Well, I I remember actually one of my professors in Chicago and he he was, you know, he was French, but he, I remember him one day, he was talking about learning a language, but it was, it was kind of applicable more broadly. And he said, you don't learn to play baseball by someone telling you how to play baseball. You exactly. just start playing. <laughs> right. And, and you, I mean, people, you know, help you out and guide you along the way, but you just kind of start doing it. And, you know, even in my own classes, like if I, if I want people to be doing theology and thinking theologically and making theological arguments, I mean, they have to, you know, do some reading and think about it. And I have to give them some terms and, and whatnot. But a lot of what I just try to do is push them into, you know, how do you think about this? What is the argument you would make? What, you know, just right. kind of do the thing. And yeah. yeah. And when you, when you do that, you model for them mm-hmm. what good intellectual inquiry is, you know, and when you let and when you sort of like engage, like especially with grad students, but I, even with undergrads, you know, when you engage in sort of argumentation or inquiry, like about a certain text or something like that, or a certain situation in the social world, you you model a certain way of analyzing things mm-hmm. and a way of asking questions. And I think, I, you know, I know that when I was in grad school, that was so fundamental mm-hmm. to how I learned what I do today. Yeah. So as we wrap up, I, I warned you earlier that there's a, a less serious closing questionnaire of five questions. Okay. <laughs> Some probably easier than others. Number one to start, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Can I say both? Yeah, you, you absolutely can. 
Are you, are yeah. you like are you like coffee in the morning, tea at night, or like intermix? Or? I'm, well, I'm actually cafe au lait in the morning, okay. tea the rest of the day. Okay. Number two, if you had your choice of superpowers, what would you pick? I boy, I don't know. I don't even know the range of superpowers. This is where my culture. <laughs> this is where my cultural knowledge is lacking. <laughs> wow. I mean, you can think of almost anything. That, I think like, if you wish you could almost I, do I my think, magic, you know. Yeah, I think I'd like to be Spider Woman. I okay. Because I think I'd like to spin webs. Okay. How's Solid. that? Yeah, and I mean, she's got a whole whole range of things she can do. So that's that's pretty great. Yeah. Number three, what is your favorite biblical name? Well, you're having me go through like, you know, sort of like (laughs) different books of the Bible. Well, you know what? I named my first son John. So so I, I think that's my favorite biblical name. No, that's a solid pick. Next one, you mentioned having a background in ministry and having that having been your first career. I'm wondering if you can think of a favorite or alternatively a least favorite liturgical song. <laughs> well, I mean, you can go the, either way. Obvious, the, the obvious favorite is the hymn that's, that's the title of my first book, Draws <laughs> in the Spirit's Tether. That was kind of a gimme. <laughs> oh, good. I'm not going to lie. A lot of time, this is a real stumper for people. So. <laughs> I'm always curious what, what people are going to go up with. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. And, you know, some people, especially they, you know, they don't, they don't want to say a least favorite because they don't want to be really critical. But some people definitely have, you know, a least favorite. But that's oh, why, yeah. But that's, why, that's why I say or because, you know, you cannot, you're not always going to go you know, both ways on that. And then, all right, number five, last question. Of whom or of what would you be the patron saint? <laughs> well, I think I'm probably a sinner, not a patron saint. But it, but it's it's aspirational. It's 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 aspirational. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> good. Now that to me is a stumper. Hmm. Well, you know, I, I like. I think. You know, as I told you, I'm, you know, like I'm here, you know, at Notre Dame and I was an undergrad here, but I'm also Jesuit trained. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, like if I'd be a, I be, I think I really would be like, a, would would aspire to be a patron saint, like that would be like more an educator, I guess. All right. that, that, but that was the toughest one. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I've gotten I'm trying to remember ones I had in the past. There was a one was patron saint of dog walkers because uh, he was a really <laughs> he was a really faithful dog walker, and I, I liked that oh. one a lot. It was very it's very concrete. I've had, had had teachers, had people who were doing their best, <laughs> so all sorts of range. So no, no, that's a great answer. It's a great answer. So I bet you get that a lot, though, right? I do. I I I've been told more than once that these are the harder questions. Uh, mm-hmm. Then the how did you come to you know do your work? And, oh yeah, and, that kind of stuff. and uh, I mean imagine I imagine the earlier questions are ones people are maybe more used to thinking about and asking, but these closing questions off also give kind of a different flavor to whomever I'm talking with. So I, I, I like seeing what people come up with. So yeah, I mean if I were thinking like as I you know when you said like dog walker that would have tipped me off maybe to something else but oh well, <laughs> well I, yeah and i don't I, you know I, don't, I never want to sway you know someone's someone's thinking yeah well mary ellen thank you so much for doing this i i've greatly enjoyed this you're welcome the daily theology podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 